Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hot Spice Show. As always, I'm your host, JC Calavita, a.k.a. Hot Spice. This week, we head out west and talk about some of the biggest developments coming out of the Golden State. Today, we also have an interview with Timmy McEnany. He's a freshman pitcher for the Cornell Big Red of the Ivy League. He's going to talk about how Ivy League players continue to work despite having their season canceled. To end the show, I'll talk about a player whose son is currently tearing up the league. First, I want to head to Oakland. The A's recently just completed a 13-game winning streak. Everyone always counts out the A's. I have no idea why. They, they're always in the playoffs. They're always good. Just because they have a low budget and they do Moneyball stuff doesn't mean they're not going to be bad. Every year, they count out the A's, and every year we're proven wrong. And you know what? I put them second in my predictions and in, the, in that Western division, and I think they're going to hold to it. So they lost the first six games of the year. They got swept by the Astros, and they lost the first two games of the Dodgers series. They're 15-3 and three since then. First baseman Matt Olson is really leading this team. He has a slash line of 312, 379, and 610 with six homers. He's hit, and he hit 195 last year. He's not really known for his offense. 37-year-old Jed Lowry is having a career renaissance in Oakland. He's, he was out of baseball for basically two years, and now he's a crucial part of this A's lineup. Mark Canna has done wonders in the leadoff spot. He leads the league in runs scored and has an on-base percentage of, of 400. Now, if you guys don't know, the, the ideal slash line is a 300 average, a 400 on-base percentage, and a 500 slugging percentage. So he's, he's doing pretty well in that department. He's the only other player. These are the only players, Matt Olson, Jed Lowry, and Mark Canna, to be hitting above 250 in that lineup because the offense is not the driving force. Their rotation is. Sean Manaya and Chris Bassett have really looked sharp. Minaya has a 2.83 ERA, and Bassett, after a rocky first two starts, he's really turned it on. Over the 13-game winning streak, A starters have allowed two runs or less in 11 of those games. Their bullpen has been stellar. Lou Trevino has filled Liam Hendricks' shoes very well. They have three relievers with an ERA around two and a half or lower, and they've yet to blow a save, which only, only one other team can say, that the Yankees. And the Yankees are doing terrible right now, which... Not to be biased, but I'm, I'm, I'm really loving that the Yankees are doing awful right now. But anyway, like I said, everyone always counts the A's out. They're always projected to finish the bottom. And honestly, their lineup isn't even playing their best at all. They're just, they're just doing what they need to do to win. They're, they're in a good division and because the Angels are going to be good. The Angels have you know Trout and, and Otani's going off right now. They're going to need to perform well in this division to have a chance in October. But right now, they're sitting in first place, and – We'll see what happens down the road, but I, I see the A's going to the playoffs this year. I, I, I always like them. I love rooting for the A's. I'd love to see them get a championship at some point. They're really fun to root for. They're a great team to watch. And come on, Oakland, let's do it. Let's win one for the Coliseum. Oh, speaking of stadiums, uh, I was watching uh, Corbin Burns pitch the other day. He, he, he didn't pitch very well. He, his walk streak is still alive. He hasn't walked the guy yet. But I discovered that Miller Park – is not what the Brewer Stadium is called anymore. It's called American Family Field. What even is American Family? 
the heck? It's an insurance company. Dude, you're a team named after literal people who make beer. And your and your stadium was named after a beer. Why would you change that? Come on, Miller. I mean, I don't know who to blame here, Miller or the Brewers. Anyway, that's just a little tangent, speaking of stadium names. Uh, so moving on, staying in the West, obviously. Pot, the Padres Dodgers series over this weekend. I know it's a little while ago, but it was awesome. So listen, Chavez were being down in Dodger Stadium. The Padres won that series three to one. It was the first series loss of the year for the Dodgers. So in game one, you know, Walker Bueller had a really good game. You know, he seven innings, two runs given up, nine Ks. And but the real story was Trent Grisham. Trent Grisham, if you don't know him, I wouldn't expect you to. Uh He's one of the Padres' best players. You know, he's not obviously as good as Hosmer or Patis or Machado, but he's a guy you got to watch. He had a monster home run to put the Padres up two to nothing. He has really had a career renaissance in in San Diego, not to use that term again, but in his rookie year, he was called up for the Brewers when when Christian Yelich went down. And he's the guy that let the ball go through his legs in that 2019 wildcard game in Washington. He let it go right through his legs. And that's what people thought he would get remembered for. Just like Marcus Williams, if you don't know who that is, he's the cornerback on the Saints who missed tackling Stephon Diggs. So, you know, he didn't want to be remembered for just like that, just the same way Bill Buckner is always remembered as having a bad career, even though he had a really good career. He just had one bad play that's that really, you know, tortured him forever. But anyway, he really invented himself in San Diego. And it's really cool because he doesn't wear any batting gloves because as a kid, he was too poor to afford them. And he has a golf grip on his bat. Like, I think that's so interesting. I really think you got a player to watch is Trent Grisham. Keep him in mind. Wait, watch, watch in July. I, I bet you he's on the all-star team right now. He's awesome. I love watching him play. It appeared that rookie Ryan Weathers was outdueling Bueller through five innings. After he got taken out, solo home runs from Pollock in the sixth and Sheldon Noose in the seventh, they tied the game. And Tassie's got into a double play in the top of the eighth. The direction Profar scored in the play. So the Padres ended up winning that game three to two. You know, good game. Not amazing, but, you know, something to build off of. And in game two, you had a great matchup. Clayton Kershaw, you darn. Both guys went seven innings. Darvish gave up four hits. Kershaw gave up five hits. Darvish gave up a run. Kershaw gave up three. Darvish had nine Ks. Kershaw had seven Ks. Kershaw didn't pitch badly. He gave up three home runs, one of them to Will Myers, two to Tatis, and that was on the anniversary of his father hitting two grand slams in the same inning. Darvish completely outdueled Kershaw, and the Dodgers bullpen just couldn't keep it close. So Darvish allowed a run in the first inning, and he changed his sequence in the gameplay. He needed to freeze hitters. He was throwing fastballs that were like clearly in the zone. They weren't on the corners or anything. And he got he would get called strikes. He would get called strikeouts on those pitches. And you could just tell the Dodger hitters were just completely off balance in that game. And that's why the Padres went on the win, six to one. Another pitching matchup for game three that was really cool to see was Trevor Bauer versus Blake Snell. So Tatis led off the game basically the same way he played the previous game. He hit a freaking monster home run on the second pitch of the game. Bauer hung a breaking ball, and Tatis was kind of trolling him a little bit. He covered one eye, you know, clowning him for something that Bauer did. 
in spring training when he's pitching with one eye just to try to you know show up as you know fellow players. Uh, and that was pretty cool. And then Profar, Jerkson Profar hit a RBI single in second inning to make the score two to zero. The Dodgers came back and scored runs in the third and fourth innings to tie the game. And then Tatis hit his fourth home run in two games, and the Padres retook the lead. All hell really broke loose after Blake Snell got taken out, just like Game 6 of the World Series. Uh, the Dodgers scored three runs in the sixth inning. Snell only went five in the third, and they won the Game 5 to 4. In Game 4, Dustin May versus Joe Musgrove. Not exactly you know, the matchup you wanted to see, not the best one. Musgrove only went three innings, while May went six strong, striking at a career-high 10. Tatis homered again and became the first shortstop to homer in three consecutive games at Dodgers Stadium. Dodgers led 7-1 after six innings. It's not even close how the game ended. The Padres crawled their way back. They scored two in the seventh, two in the eighth, and two in the ninth to tie the game and sent it to extra innings. Both teams were used off their bench early, and that's why we saw Clayton Kershaw up to hit in the tenth with the bases loaded and a chance to walk it off. Now, obviously, I mean, he, he didn't get a hit. He is a good hitting pitcher, but he didn't get a hit that time. He struck out. And the Padres, Padres ultimately and the Padres ultimately ended up winning because Eric Hosmer had a sack fly on the top of the 11th. They get the Padres the lead and winning 8-7. So what I'm seeing from this series is that I loved hearing Machado and Tatis get booed. I love that. It's great for baseball. I mean, Machado even used to play in L.A. for a little bit. He played get a cup of coffee there. Um, and they're going to have a huge rivalry for years to come, and their matchups, their matchups are really one must-see TV. They have great pitching matchups pretty much every game. The Dodgers have Bueller and Bauer and Kershaw, and the Padres have Musgrove and Paddock and Snell and Darvish. They're great pitching matchups pretty much almost every game guaranteed. I mean, even Dustin May. I can throw Dustin May in there. He's been doing very well this season. The Dodgers and Padres, I, I, I don't know. I might have to change my Cardinals pick because for the World Series because these two teams just look too unstoppable. Um, the funny thing is, like, everybody is so focused on the Padres and Dodgers, and no one has realized that the Giants are tied for first with L.A. right now. But, I, again, I talked about this earlier. I really don't know how that's going to stay. Now it's time to welcome our guest to the show. He's a freshman left-handed pitcher for the Cornell Big Red of the Ivy League in Ithaca, New York. During his career at Bannisquan High School, he was a member of the 2017 New Jersey Group 2 state championship team. Before his senior season was cut short, he was named a Perfect Game preseason All-American, I will mention, for the Northeast region. Perfect Game also ranked him as the seventh best left-handed pitcher in the Garden State. Timmy McEnany, welcome to the Hospice Show. How are you, Tim? Good. How are you doing, Johnny? How's doing it going? Well, doing well. I start every interview off basically the same way. Give me a scouting report on yourself. Uh, I would say if I was giving a scouting report, I'd say six foot eight lefty coming from a kind of three quarters arm slot, maybe a bit higher. Uh, fastball changeup, curveball guy. Uh, he's got a lot of tail on his fastball and likes to mix up uh, pitches in different counts and sort of is not afraid to throw a three two changeup. So obviously, let's start with your height here. You're six foot eight, and I mean, how, how much of an advantage does that give you on the mound? I mean, it's huge because when you're six foot eight or even just a tall person, you're so much closer to the plate when you release the ball. So if I'm throwing, let's just say a random number, if I'm throwing 88 from 
56 or 52 feet because my stride is going to be look a lot harder to the hitter that is uh, from a pitch, a shorter pitcher that's throwing from a farther distance, even if I'm throwing slower than him. Yeah, like that's what Randy Johnson did. Randy Johnson, I mean, he was 6'11 or whatever. He, I mean, he was throwing yeah. 100 miles an hour, but his stride made him like 10 feet closer, and he was really throwing like 110. That was like – Yeah, Chapman's huge with that too, I know. He has a huge stride. Yeah, and like – so does, does, does having like – does you have, you have big hands, right? Oh, uh, yeah, pretty big. <laughs> so like does that, does that help you with like your off-speed pitches? Because I know like if you have longer fingers – you can you can hold on to the ball a little bit longer and get to just more like get more spin on it. Yeah, I, I'd say it does because it, it really helps you get a feel of the ball. And the most important thing is letting the ball roll off your fingers, especially on your changeup. And using the laces to your advantage is very big. So I mean, you don't necessarily need to have the biggest hands, but it certainly does help. You talked about how you have a three quarter arm slot. Does that change pitch to pitch? Like you like you throw three quarters for like a changeup and like over the top of a fastball? Uh, I would say it's probably pretty similar. I'm probably a little bit higher than a three quarters, but I'm definitely not one of those guys that's coming straight over the top. Um, but what I, I try to keep it the same as much as possible to try and deceive the hitter to think I'm throwing the same pitch every time. So there's no tells when I'm pitching or throwing a certain pitch. So he'll be able to see or like predict what pitch I'm throwing. So kind of trying to just emulate the same motion over and over again. Is there a benefit to throwing, you know, from a different arm slot? I mean, yeah, because you just – hitters aren't used to seeing things. Uh, they're so used to seeing the typical righty pitcher that's thrown over the top. Uh, when you switch on the, the arm slot and it's coming from a different side, uh, it's really – really throws them off, throws off their timing, which is huge for a hitter. And you also talked about how, like you said, like you're not afraid to throw a three-two changeup. How how important is having confidence out there on the mound? Like obviously, you have to you have to be able to trust your stuff. Like I mean, people people go out there. Be if you're nervous, you're not going to do well. Like I know for a fact. Like when I pitched in high school, I wasn't a very good pitcher. I I was nervous my first outing, and I didn't do very well. But like, how important is just having the mindset? Like you're going to throw a strike. You have you have total control of your pitches. How is it, how does that help you? I mean, confidence is very important as a pitcher. I mean, everyone, of course, gets the butterflies and the nerves when you first step out there, but it's very important to settle in and get into a rhythm and help you gain your confidence because it's very easy to see when you're not a confident pitcher because you're the man when you're out there. Everyone's looking at you. You got the ball every single pitch. You're a part of every play. So it's very important that you're a bulldog out there and you, you just – have the mindset that I'm better than the batter and I'm going to strike him out or I'm going to get him out some way. And I know one thing with the Niners is they talked about body language on the mound. Would you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's very important. You have to have a very short memory as a pitcher. I mean, especially when you get to the higher levels, the hitters are just as good, if not better. Cause usually when you're playing high school ball, it's usually the, you got to worry about the two, three, four, five hitter. And then you can kind of just throw fastballs by everyone else just because you have the talent. But once you get to the higher level in travel and in college, uh, every hitter is good. So you have to be on your A game at all times. And you can't, you really can't take a pitch off. But uh, about body language, if you have to have such a short memory because if some – let's just say a guy hits a home run off of you, 
you just got to go right to the next pitch. You can't let it affect your next pitch. You have to kind of – the passes in the past, you just got to worry about the next move you can make and what you can do to get the next guy out. How do you keep your composure on the mound when things don't go your way? Uh, as I said before, just having a short memory, I mean, everything's not going to be perfect as a pitcher. I mean, the, the name of the game is scoring runs. That's how you win. So there's got, there's obviously going to be hits, runs, home runs, doubles, stolen bases, even errors against you as a pitcher. And you kind of just got to roll with it and just look look to the next batter and kind of like even if even a wild pitch you got to say all right that pitch is in the past now let me dot up this pitch and then uh, work from there and I'm also a huge fan of uh, working your fielders into the game too I'm I've I've not never really been a huge strikeout guy throughout my career although I've become more of one as of like recently but I'm usually a ground ball pitcher when I'm on my best and I think it's a great a very good trait to have your your fielders involved in the game. Absolutely. Like when I was pitching, I know that I always struggled with my the defense behind me. I know there would be times where there'd be ground balls to second or ground balls to easy round balls that like they the fielders would just miss and I'd have to strike at everybody. And like you, I was never a big strikeout guy, I never threw hard enough. Um but is there anything a pitcher can do to, to you know, help out the guys behind him? Because I know, I know a, a quarterback, if, if the team believes in a quarterback, they, believe they, they perform better. Is there, some, is there a similar uh, rapport like that with pitchers and their, their, their defense? Uh, yeah, I would say, I'd say that there's a very similar rapport. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, let's just say my second baseman makes an error, and I'll, I'll look at him and I'll go, hey, we'll get the next one, and then I'll go, me and you are going to roll a double play right now. Just something positive and keeping keeping their spirits up and just don't don't get frustrated with them because no one's perfect in the game. There's going to be errors, and that's just it's just the way it is. You got they're your teammates at the end of the day. You can't get angry with them. Going into my senior year of high school, that summer of junior slash senior year, so I actually have to be very extra careful with my arm. I've only got a certain amount of throws per week, certain amount of pitches. Uh, it's crazy how regimented and how down to it see they have the uh, coming back from your surgery. It's like you have to throw an X amount of throws from the next amount like distance uh, for each day. So you, you really have to limit your throws and make sure you're kind of watching over yourself. And you just got to take care of your body and listen to your body. I mean, if your arm's barking at you, you just stop throwing. There's, there's always it's never good to throw through pain. And um, I would just say you always got to just make sure and take the time out of your day to do your bands, do uh, ice your arm if, it, if you need to. I'm a huge ice guy. Some other guys aren't. But just do what you need to do to take care of your arm because it, it will make a huge difference. And if you don't take care of it, it will, you'll see the results of not feeling great the next day. Has getting Tommy John surgery like, changed your pitching style at all? Uh, no, it actually hasn't. That's the one thing I was surprised. Uh, right after surgery, it's, you, you kind of go over the first mental block of, okay, I have to, I have to trust my arm and kind of trust the process of I'm going to be back where I was. I mean, it's not very, it's not easy to come back from it. It's, it's a bit of a long journey, but uh, I, I would say it hasn't because uh, I've done everything kind of the way you're supposed to. 
And uh, I think a very important part about coming back and getting back to where you are is just making sure to take the right amount of rest. You're not going to be able to come back in a month or two if you try to jam all the throws into a short period of time. You just got to let let your arm uh, take its course and get better. But I really do think uh, I throw very similarly to what uh, I was before. So you're still at like the same velocity, the same break on your curveball as you were pre-surgery? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. So when I uh, when I was kind of going through the college recruiting process, I was throwing with my UCL torn. So and I wasn't even changing my velocity or uh, arm slot or any of that break stuff. Uh, it's, it was all very similar. So I, I would say it's uh, it's it's very similar to what it is. It hasn't really the surgery hasn't affected anything. About your recruiting process, how did you get to Cornell? And, like, what other schools were you looking at before you ultimately picked this team? Uh, I got to Cornell by – I was throwing in Georgia at one of the – I think it was the WWBA um, Perfect Game Tournament. And, uh, yeah, I was throwing in front of Coach Hager, who's actually the hitting coach here, and he ended up calling – the, uh, the, the head coach and pitching coach, uh, Coach Pep. And uh, I threw a very good outing. My first uh, my first outing that Coach Hager saw me, and he really liked what he saw, and I'm really happy to be here. I mean, I love it here. It's great academics, great baseball. It is a little cold. You got to grind through it, but uh, it's great. I, I really love it. And uh, some of the other schools that I was looking at were uh, William & Mary, uh, Northwestern, JMU, UMass, uh, Fordham, schools like that. Yeah, I feel you with the cold, man. In State College, it, it snowed like last week. So I feel <laughs> Yeah, that. it snowed here last week. And then about two days ago, it was 70. It was crazy. What have you been working most to improve on this year? Uh, I would say just staying healthy has been a huge thing for me. I mean, I've gone through a bit of a back problem this year, which was actually very great timing considering the Ivy League uh, canceled play for the season. But um, I, I, my, my main focus is just being able to get out there and be reliable with my body and uh, just trying to stay healthy and uh, take care of myself. Uh, and then also I've been trying to just, you know, condition my arm to be able to go through longer stints just because coming back from surgery, I haven't really gone through because we haven't been able to play games. I haven't gone through a longer uh, outing in a while. Do you think when you do come back fully and like the season's on next year, do you want to be a starter or would you rather be like a reliever or even a closer? Uh, Wherever coach needs me. I mean, I've done all in my pitching career. Uh, When I was younger, I was – I'm, I'm penciled in starter most of the time, but uh, as I grew older, I was able to kind of fill into those reliever and closer roles. So uh, wherever wherever I'm needed is where I'm pleased to be, and wherever is best for the team, and just kind of best to put our team in the best uh, possible situation to win the game is where I want to be. What's what's a routine you go through? Like, do do you have a routine you do on a day you know you're going to pitch? Uh, so, yeah, so Coach Pep actually has – he has a great program here where uh, he has every day kind of slotted on what you're doing. So if you're throwing 
a bullpen one day, you'll have a recovery slash pliable day. And then you'll have a, it's called a hybrid day where you'll uh, long toss, stretch your arm out and you kind of go through the process. But uh, whenever you're throwing here, we usually do what's called a dynamic warm up, kind of just loosen up your body, do some uh, stretches. And then we'll do some, uh, it's called nine minute shoulders. It's kind of just uh, strengthening and stretching out your shoulder and keeping your shoulder in shape and healthy so it doesn't affect other parts of your arm and get somewhere else injured. And then we'll move into, you'll move into bands and then some drive line right before you throw and then the wrist weights. And then you'll pick up the ball and start throwing. Usually you start from a knee and then you gradually make your way back. And yeah, that's pretty much it. What would you say to a young pitcher? What would you say they could do to prevent injuries? Uh, I would say keep track of your pitch count and don't allow a coach to take advantage of your young arm. I mean, I, I even though I did have Tommy John surgery, I did do a great job of uh, keeping care of my arm as throughout my career. And uh, I would also just suggest – as, as it look it looks very pretty to throw a curveball when you're a young kid it, it can wait I mean a changeup will do you just as good if not better just because the deception of the uh, the seams that you're giving the hitter and uh, yeah I would just make sure to take uh, take your pitch count and take the correct amount of rest days who helped you become the pitcher that you ultimately became uh, I would say coach Hammond and coach Meta have definitely played a huge role in uh the pitcher I am today I mean they all they, they they've ever since I've been 13 years old I believe I've been a niner and they really put the big boy pants on me I mean I was always a good youth pitcher and oh I'm in my little bubble of Monmouth County striking everyone out or having great outings but they really put the big boy pants on me and said, all right, this is how it's going to work. This is how we're going to get better. This is the work ethic you're going to need. And they really gave you the tools. And also Coach Colson was a great guy. He used to always say, there's no magic syrup I can give you. There's no magic serum that uh, will make you a Division One pitcher. It's, I can give you all the tools you need. I can give you all the advice. I can coach you the best of my ability but it's really in how you're going to decide you're going to take it day by day, what your work ethic is going to be and uh, just kind of your, your mentality. What did the Niners give you other than exposure that a high school team or a town team just can't compete with? Uh, They just surrounded by guys with similar goals and aspirations as me. I mean, it's obviously everyone wants to make the big leagues and it's the, it's the dream, but they truly put you with kids that are very equal to your ability. And they're, they're the best kids in their County or, or town or whatever. And they, they put you with these kids that have the work ethic that want to be at the next level. And uh, it, it, it really makes you compete because you're so used to being the best kid in your, your, your little bubble. And now you're just another just another guy, another dude on the team. It, it really helps you realize like, all right, if I really want to be the best, if I want to strive for greatness, I got to work. I got to work at it. On my podcast, I've talked about different rule changes that the MLB might implement. So I kind of want to get 
your feedback as sort of the next generation. What do you think about a pitch clock? Uh, I mean, I've always been a pitcher that has liked to get in a fast rhythm and pitch fast. So it, it wouldn't really affect me, but I do understand where they're coming from to try and make the game more fast paced. And I know it's been a big knock on baseball that it's considered a boring sport by a lot of people. But uh, I think that a pitch clock is, is possibly viable and could, could possibly be added, but I don't think it should be, forcing pitchers to rush because pitching truly is like an art. I mean, it's, it's a mind game all at the same time as is mental and physical. So I, I'm all for it as long as you're not rushing the pitcher to throw and get out of their rhythm or mechanics. As a lefty, I've seen rules that have actually taken place in the minor leagues this year where you have to step off to pick over. Like there's no more lift your leg Maybe you're going home. Maybe you're going to first. You have to actually disengage from the rubber to pick off. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I wouldn't. I'd say I'm not a fan of that. I mean, that's just one of the advantages that comes with being a lefty. I think, and I also think it's a very weird rule, considering as a lefty, if I'm going to pick them off by stepping off, I'm facing first base, so it's it's very hard for me to quickly step off and whip a throw over without the hitter being able to tell as a righty, you can kind of do a quick spin move with your shoulders and your feet and uh, get the runner off caught, caught off balance. But that there's not really going to be much of that. That would just put lefties at a complete disadvantage just because you're literally facing the, the guy that's trying to steal off you. So there'd be a lot of tells and they'd be able to run all over the place over you. I would think. As a young kid growing up, or even now, was there a player that you sort of modeled yourself after? Yeah, I would say I'm a Yankees fan, so I was a huge CC Sabathia fan, and I was a huge Andy Pettit fan growing up. I mean, they were both lefties. I mean, Sabathia, when he was on the Yankees, never threw the, hard, never threw the hardest. He just pounded the strike zone and got outs, and he was always just a bulldog. I mean, even if he wasn't having his best outing, he would, he would save the bullpen and go at least five, six innings just to, to make sure that the bullpen wasn't ruined for the rest of the series. And I also just loved Pettit. And I, I really based my pickoff move off of Andy Pettit because he had such a great move. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was a huge fan of the lefty pitchers. I mean, I was obviously a Jeter fan, but since I was a lefty pitcher, I had to go with Pettit and Sabathia. Something that people might not know about you is that you're a right-handed hitter. How was that? How did you how did you balance that in middle school and like when you were still hitting? Like I know obviously I mean did you wear those those elbow guards because I know it's it's such a weird occurrence like you never see a lefty throw a righty hitter. Yeah, so it was actually really weird being a righty hitter. Everyone would always look at me funny whenever I would go up there with my with righty my uh my feet in the righty's batter's box. Everyone would think I was joking around and hitting in the wrong side and it just wasn't true. But yeah, as you said, I had to wear a bunch of elbow guards and stuff just to be able to protect my arm. But uh, it was kind of funny because one of my uh, elementary school friends and high school friends was also the same as me. He was a lefty pitcher, hit righty. So it was, it was strange that we had two of the same guys in the lineup that were both lefty righties. Obviously you go to Cornell and you're in the Ivy league. 
how do you balance that Ivy League education and a full-time Division One sport? Because everyone always says Division One is like a job. Yeah, it truly is. I mean, you got practice six times a week, and you're also lifting and trying to get stronger probably three or four times a week. So, And then at an Ivy League school, you got a lot of work. You just you, you truly got to embrace the grind and you got You got to love it. I mean, if you if you're if you really don't like what you're doing here, you could get caught in the wrong places. You just got to one of my things that I've really done to stay keep on track with schoolwork and all that is I you really have to work ahead. So let's just say I have like three papers due Friday. I'll, I'll try and get one done by Monday or Tuesday, get another done by Wednesday. You just have to you have to use your time efficiently because there's only so many hours in a day. I mean, and there's there are some late nights where you're up till up till two, three in the morning just doing homework. But it, it, it's truly it's it's very doable, even though it sounds like it's impossible and oh the the work's going to be impossible. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I mean, I I thought the same thing coming in. Like, what am I getting myself into? And uh, I, it's very manageable. You just have to. You have to be use time management and time management skills are very important and you can't just sit around and do nothing. I mean, there's, there's always times to play video games. You can play video games, watch TV your whole life, but for these four years, you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta suck it up and grind. I mean, it's going to be worth it. Yeah. And Ivy league education is just world-class and you can kind of get any job you want anywhere you want. So that's kind of the goal of just, just using time management, as I would say, is the most important part. How was your team trained this year, being that your season was canceled? Yeah, so in the fall, we were all we all had high hopes that we would have a season. I mean, we were told that we had a really great chance. Uh, we were told that if we didn't have any cases, uh, it would help our cause. And uh, we did everything we were supposed to as a team. We practiced uh, – we had zero cases. We followed all the protocols. Uh, nowadays, we're getting tested seven times a week. Um, but, yeah, it, it was definitely different in the spring knowing we didn't have a season, which it, it was definitely a bummer when we all uh, had to look at each other and say, wow, we worked for this for a year. I mean, in my case, I've worked for, it for two and a half years to get a, finally get a season just be, because of my uh, – surgery and the losing my senior season but the, the practice schedule is what we do now is we'll we'll treat midweek just like a normal midweek uh during the season and then what we do is we have we'll scrimmage each other and what we're actually doing this uh this upcoming weekend and then the next weekend is we're having a, re a red and white world series where two of our starting pitchers had a draft and they would draft uh, guys and we're going to play each other with some umpires and stuff, which should be, should be kind of fun, but we've just been scrimmaging, scrimmaging each other a lot, just trying to make each other better and get prepared uh, for next season. Wait, that's so awesome. Are you guys going to stream it anywhere? Uh, it might be on zoom. I think some of our scrimmages have been on zoom, but uh yeah, it, it's really nice. It's it's a good thing. Our, our coach has been great. Coach Cup has done a great job. He was obviously bummed out not having a season, but he's done his best to keep it, keep us on our uh, grind and keep us hardworking and uh, just keep us in the right attitude and being positive and uh, just showing up to, to the field every day, ready to work and get better, even though you don't have games. I mean, games are the fun part of baseball. 
all the, the practice and the, the lifting and the, the late night uh, throwing sessions you have is just part of the grind, but it, it, it does stink, but we, we make it work. So you, you talked about how you haven't really thrown in a couple of years. When was the last time you pitched? So I have the last time I pitched, I was supposed to pitch this spring, but I ran into some back injuries. So currently I'm on another return to throwing program and I'll, I'll be back up and going in the summer and then be ready for next season. But uh, the last game I pitched was this summer. I pitched an inning uh, for a local travel team. But then besides that inning, it was my junior summer was my last like true over one inning outing. So it's been, it's been a little weird considering the sport I'm at college for and the sport I'm practicing every day. I mean, even now I'm, I'm throwing every other day and I haven't even played really, which is a little strange, but it is what it is. And uh, I'm just really excited to get back out there. Does Cornell have like a cool sort of hangout area for you guys or a cool clubhouse? Cause I know Penn state football has, I mean, obviously you can't really compare Penn state football to Cornell baseball, but they have this building where they have like a hyperbaric chambers and different recovery rooms and like video game rooms and all this stuff. But do you guys get any special perks for being on the team? Yeah, we definitely do. Uh, we actually are going to get a new stadium in, I believe, two years. Uh, they are building a new academic building where our field is right now. So they're going to kind of build our stadium and uh, as a replica of uh, University of South Carolina, I believe. Uh, they're going to replicate that and they're going to give us a new uh, new fields, new clubhouse, uh, new locker room, new batting cages, new throwing areas with new mounds. So it's it's kind of exciting. It'll be great to be here as a kind of saying goodbye to Hoy Field, which is is one. I think it's one of the top three oldest stadiums left in college baseball. Uh, but uh, it'll be very fun. And uh it'll be a pleasure to say goodbye and be one of the last people to play on Hoy field and then be one of the first people to play on our brand new stadium, which it'll, it'll be very exciting. I think, and I'm very excited to see how it turns out. Because you guys, season was canceled. Does that mean you get a a year of eligibility extra? Do you get that back? Yes, we do. So I know a lot of guys, it's, it depends on the situation. So, Actually, one of our senior pitchers, I believe, was he's going to try and do his fifth year. And I know some of the sophomores here, so uh, and juniors, they have a they still have two more years left of eligibility because last year shut down and this year for them. But uh, yeah, so we all have a, a fifth year. We have an option to do it here, but you just have to do it through graduate school. So you have to academically pave pave the way to to get into graduate school here, which is very difficult, but uh, you can also do your fifth year at like somewhere, somewhere else if you wanted to, which is, I think the plan of uh, some of the guys on the team, some of the guys on the team are planning to stay here, but I think a lot of guys will take advantage of their fifth year. And I think it's, it, it can be a positive. If you look at it, we'll be bigger, stronger, throwing harder, hitting the ball farther in our fifth year than we are now. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it pans out, but I'm excited to do my fifth year. Definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting considering the Ivy League doesn't let you redshirt, if I'm not mistaken, right? They don't let you redshirt really, right? Yeah, so it's this, It's kind of like the same situation. So let's just say if you were hurt your whole freshman year, 
you you can still do your fifth year at like let's just say Penn State. You go to Penn State, so we'll use that as the example. If if you get hurt your your freshman year and you don't play any games, you can't do your fifth year here because it, it's very academically based in the Ivy League. They very they're very stress on your academics, which makes sense. Um, but they will, you're still allowed and the NCAA allows you to, uh, do your fifth year at other places, which is, which is very nice. All right, Timmy, we're going to head into the home stretch here. Where is the coolest place you've ever played? Oh, that's a tough question. The coolest place I've ever played. Uh, Wow, that's a very tough question. I mean, throughout my career, I've played at numerous minor league stadiums, uh, played at like where uh, the Blue Claws have played, the Trenton Thunder, the Iron Pigs. Uh, a very cool experience when I was younger is going to Ripken. It was the, uh, the smaller replicas of the uh, some of the fields, uh, of the big league fields, like they have like a miniature green monster. But uh, I think the coolest place I've played is yet to come, in my opinion, because I think we're I think we open up at Virginia next season, which I know Alex said was his favorite place to play or was one of his the coolest places he's played. So that that should be very interesting. I know we were having talks of opening up at Mississippi State one year. So I think the coolest place for me is yet to come when uh, we're playing some of our out of conference schedule. That's such a good answer, though. That's such a good answer. I know for me, it was definitely that trip to JMU. Uh, that was a really yeah. J- JMU is a great field. Uh, with that's a yeah. I, I really think it is yet to come though, just because of all the the places. Like this year, we were supposed to open up at Georgia, so I think that would have been a great experience. And I, I think it, it really is yet to come. What is a word of advice? that you would give to a prospective college baseball player? Uh, this is kind of cliche and everyone says this, but says this, but and even as an Ivy league guy, everyone's like, Oh, whatever. But is uh, make sure you have good grades is really important. Everyone, there's going to be a million guys. I mean, not a million, but there's hundreds of guys that are just like you built, just like you throw just as hard. But uh the grades are very important. I know numerous kids that had the talent to be power five players and they just couldn't cut it just because of their grades. It's really sad. And I know it's tough for some guys in the classroom. It's tough to focus and it's tough to kind of be present, but it's very important. And it's one of the first questions a recruiter asks you is, so what's your grades? What's your GPA? What's your SAT? And you just have to make sure you manage it. I mean, even if you're not the best student, just just try your best and really put an effort in to have good grades because there's just, I know tons, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that just didn't make it because of grades. And they, they had the talent. They had more than enough talent. But it, it's very important, especially when, uh, you, it, I mean, it's a university. They obviously want to be good standing academically and they want the, the team to look good. They don't want to be known as the, the, the school that lets everyone in. So I, I would really stress having good grades and playing really good baseball at the same time. A, a combination of the two is very important. You can't just do one or the other. Obviously, that's the, first, that's the last thing Skip said to us. 
every practice yeah schoolwork yeah how was your grade and uh here's the last one here what do you love most about baseball Ooh, that's a great question what i love most about baseball is just is honestly my position because as a pitcher you have all the eyes are on you 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 truly control the game you control the pace of the game you could you could be you can quick pitch a guy the next pitch there's a guy in base you can look him down five times and then step off you're truly in control and it's it's your domain it's your world everyone else is just living in it when you're the pitcher i mean that that's what i love most is even when when you're even when talking with hitters like they think that they dominate the game. I mean, obviously, because they're they're hitting the ball. But as a pitcher, you you truly – you decide. I mean, if you really wanted, you could just hold the ball and not throw the ball. You could just not pitch. The game, like, goes through you. So, I think that's my favorite part about baseball and being a pitcher is just that, yeah, you control the game. And it's kind of at your uh, – I lost my train of thought. It's kind of your – it's like – in your control. I kind of said that like five times, but yeah. Well, Timmy, for those of you guys who don't know, Timmy is pitching this summer in a league that I'm interning for. So yeah, it should be interesting. I'm sure I'll run into you. There might be some games where I'm calling play by play for big six, eight, Timmy McEnany on the mound. (laughs) I hope so. I mean, I'm (laughs) you're, you're, you're the Trenton generals, right? That's who you're uh, interning for. Yeah, Yeah. So I'm playing for the ocean goals. So I'm sure I'll see you. Uh, see you around and I know there's some Niners on that team so hopefully you can say hi to them all right Sam I thanks thanks for doing this at you know one in the morning after you got to <laughs> practice you had to get your schoolwork done I really appreciate it man best of luck to you this summer best of luck to you when you finally get back on the mound and pitch for your school thank you thank you so much for considering me it's truly it's very humbling and it's just an honor to have be one of the guys that you would think of to be on your podcast. It's, it's really, it's a very nice thing and you, you do a great job. I've listened to a couple of them. I, I uh, listened to the Alex one, I believe last week. And uh, yeah, it's very well done and I've recommended it to a few people and uh, I'm really excited to see what you do in the future with uh, some new guys you got. Finally, let's talk about the player of the week. Fernando Tatis senior was born in San Pedro de Macorís in the Dominican Republic. In 1992, at age 17, he was signed as an amateur free agent by the Texas Rangers. A little more than five years later, Tatis was able to make his major league debut with Texas. The following year at the trade deadline, Tatis was shipped off to St. Louis. In 1999, he would have the best season of his career. He had hit a clip of 298, belted 34 homers, and drove in 107 runs. In April, he did something that no one in MLB history has ever done. Kicks and delivers. Fastball, and it's a grand slam. Woo! We see who pired that one. A grand slam home run, and the Cardinals lead it 4 to 2. In the pitch, the runners go 3 2 to T. Swing and a long one. There it is, folks. Baseball history. A second grand slam home run for Fernando Tatis in the third inning in Los Angeles, California, and the Cardinals lead it to 11 to 2. I don't think this will ever happen again. It's too rare of an occurrence. And his name will forever be associated with that little piece of baseball lore. After the 2000 season, Tatis bounced around a bit. He was traded to Montreal and spent three seasons with the Expos. In 2004, he was invited to spring training with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, but he didn't make the team and ended up spending two years away from professional baseball. 
In 06, Tatis signed with Baltimore but spent most of the season in AAA. He was only called up for a grand total of 21 games. He finished the final three seasons of his career in Queens with the Mets and ended up retiring after the 2010 season. Obviously, his son, Fernando Jr., is tearing up the league right now, but Sr. also has another son. Elijah Tatis is a middle infielder in the White Sox organization. I actually looked him up on Baseball Reference, and he's three days younger than I am. I'm really dreading the day where I'm no longer younger than every single MLB player, and it's really fast approaching, and it's going to make me wonder, what am I doing with my life? Alright everyone, that'll just about do it for this edition of the Hot Spice Show. Thank you all for listening. I release new episodes every Thursday. Make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter at J underscore Colabita12. That's J underscore C-O-L-A-V-I-T-A-12. I'd like to thank Timmy McEnany for taking the time to do an interview, and I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I look forward to you joining me next week. One more time, I'm JC Colavita, a.k.a. Hot Spice, and this has been the Hot Spice Show. Peace, bros.